going to read from Psalm 147, and it's the little title is He Heals the Brokenhearted. So listen to God's word. Praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God, for it is pleasant and a song of praise is fitting. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the outcast of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. He determines the number of the stars. He gives to all of them their names. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. The Lord lifts up the humble. He casts the wicked to the ground. Sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Make melody to our God on the lyre. He covers the heavens with clouds. He prepares rain for the earth. Praise the Lord for that yesterday. He makes grass grow on the hills. And he gives to the beasts their food and to the young ravens that cry. His delight is not in the strength of the horse, nor his pleasure in the legs of a man. But the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those who hope in his steadfast love. You can be seated. Thank you, Mary. Let's pray together. Father, it is good to be able to rejoice uh, over you with singing, with songs, with praise, with instruments, with our voices, and it is good to be able to acknowledge how great you are. Father, we uh, want to consecrate these moments to you as holy. God, it's easy for us to keep running through life um, casual, and we appreciate, God, that we don't have to um, clean ourselves up to come into your presence. You don't, you don't require an extra measure of, uh, of anything we can do on our own to come to you. But God, we do want to just acknowledge your holiness, your grandness, your splendor, and come to you today with a rightful heart of awe, of, of respect for your majesty, of appreciation for just how majestic you are. God, may you use your word May you use our, our, our small minds and, and our small ability to articulate uh, who, who you are. May you use that to focus our hearts and, our, and our, our eyes, the eyes of our hearts, on you in such a way that we're drawn to you, we're captivated by you, we're stirred by you, that you would change us, that you would transform us, that you'd mold us into the image of your Son as we behold you. As we see your glory, may you transform us from one degree of glory to another. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Back in 2005, there was a man that gave a, a commencement address at a college called Kenyon College. He was a novelist. His name is David Foster Wallace. Uh, by all reports, not a Christian, probably an agnostic from what I could, what I could quickly Google yesterday. But uh, he gave this speech that became famous and uh, I've read it a, a number of times, different places, and I want to read you a portion of it. In it, he said this, and remember, he's not a Christian. In the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there's no, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice it, we get is what to worship. He then points out some of the problems later in the speech with some of the things we might worship, things our society kind of normally elevates to worship. He says, if you worship money and things, 
If they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you'll never have enough. You'll never feel enough. You're never like you have enough. It's the truth. Worship, if you worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, you'll always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you'll die a million deaths before they finally plant you. If you worship power, you will feel weak and afraid, and you will need even more power over others to keep that fear at bay. If you worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out, and so on and so on. And in the middle of that, Wallace pointed out this, and I find that's fascinating from a non-Christian. He says, an outstanding reason for choosing to worship some sort of God is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. There's truth to that. We all worship something. We are all living for the praise, for the applause, for the, the glory of something. Many times it's ourselves. Many times it's some achievement or some ideal of success or something we see as out there as this is what I live for. And Wallace, is an, as a novelist, as just an observer of the world, says everything other than God will eat you when you worship it. It does not love you. Your money doesn't love you. Your career doesn't love you. There is nothing else in the world that you can worship that loves you like God does. God and God alone is worthy of our worship. Even for Christians, people who ultimately, we, we say we worship God, we do applaud and praise other things. And that can be a good thing. There's nothing wrong with applauding good things that, that happen. We praise a, a football team for a clutch play they make or for winning a championship. We praise a coworker for their contribution to the company and the way that they add value. We praise a friend for doing something thoughtful and thank them for that. We praise our children for the way they learn and grow and develop in good and holy ways. And as unlike living for money or power, these can be good things that we pro praise and applaud and say, this is good. And it's a form of worship that's it's not, a, not a bad thing, it's a good thing. But even in the good forms of worship, our, our worship is, is hindered by one thing or another, that it can't quite be complete. When we worship a team for doing really well, you know what happens? The next season comes, <laughs> and they don't do quite so well that season. Or they may win 10 in a row, but eventually they stop winning. We praise some person for some great thing they do, but all people everywhere have shortcomings in one way or another, and so people ultimately can't forever live up to everything. They eventually let us down in some way. Even in, in nature, take, take just applauding the grandness of an, an, an incredible sunset. You know what happens 20 minutes later? It's dark. <laughs> it's gone. You can't hold on to it. Well, we spent a long time driving this, this week on our, our family vacation, and I just loved driving through Virginia, through these beautiful parts of the Shenandoah Valley. Just beautiful. But you know what happens? I eventually got to you know, armpits of America that were not so pretty. You know, and spent time in cities. And it just, it all, it's fleeting. It's passing. It doesn't last forever. This morning, I want to remind you of the absolute best being to worship. And I want to point you toward the way our worship now ultimately is connected to what we'll be doing forever. What we'll be doing forever. The only worship that lasts. The only worship that is eternal. And that's the worship of the one true God. This morning, I want to focus on the first part of our mission statement. We say that Infinity Church exists 
to applaud God, abide in Jesus Christ, and advance His kingdom by the power of the Holy Spirit. And over the years, I've taken some time to kind of slowly walk through that in a couple of different ways. But periodically, I just like to come revisit this for a number of reasons. And one being that just we want to make sure, and it's clear in, in everything. The whole Bible is about God, so we're not going to miss God. We don't have to be afraid of that. But a few times, I want to make sure we slow down long enough to put this mission, our, our primary focus in life, at the forefront. Not just add it in somewhere, but make sure we see this clearly. This is why we exist as a church and as people. We exist to applaud or worship God. That's what we say for us as Infinity Church, but that's what we say for all of us. Uh, and no matter what your stage of life is, we exist to applaud God. So next week, Lord willing, we'll start on a new series in First and Second Samuel. Our regular practice is to practice sequential exposition. That is walking right through books of the Bible and preach it just verse by verse. But I like occasionally to focus on what, what do we really need and here to put the mission of our church and the mission of our, our lives before us. We aim to applaud God. As a church, we do that while we gather in big groups like this. We do this when we split up in smaller groups, whether Bible studies or accountability groups or just fellowship times. All we do, and no matter how many group people are there, we, we aim to applaud God. We aim to applaud God not just collectively, but individually. We aim to applaud God when all of our littlest, youngest kids get together in the nursery, and we aim to applaud God when our senior citizens get together. Do we have any senior citizens here? Anybody? Maybe a few? All right. We aim to applaud God no matter your age, no matter the number of people, no matter the color of your skin, no matter the language you speak, no matter who you are, where you are, what you do. This is our goal. Living for the praise, for the glory, for the honor, not of ourselves or our church's name or anybody else's name, but for God and God alone. This is all through Scripture, but it's clear here in Psalm 147 we just heard. Verse 1, it is good to sing praises to our God. God is the one who has merited, who has earned our adoration and our worship. Verse 1 also says, a song of praise is fitting. It is appropriate. It is the right thing, the right response to God to sing praise back to Him. We, we, we teach, you know, we, we treat all people with dignity, right? But we treat people differently based on different things. So we treat babies or toddlers different than we treat our grandparents. We te treat teachers or, or, or public servants. We, we treat people a little bit different. We want to be appropriate in the way we respond to people. We would not respond to a, a fireman the way we would to somebody's two-year-old, you know? Like, we treat people differently. We want to give appropriate responses. When it comes to God, the appropriate response is, wow, God is worthy of our worship. That is what's fitting. God is perfect in holiness. He has never made a mistake. He's never slipped up. He's never accidentally done something or forgotten to do something. He's the only one who has always been a, kept 100% of his promises. He's the only one who has never told a lie. He has never failed. He never lets anybody down. As we'll continue to see throughout this song, it is fitting and good to praise God. There's one other phrase in verse 1 that's worth our attention. If you've got your own copy of God's Word, I invite you to just keep this psalm in front of you because it's so rich, so good. In the middle of verse 1 it says, For it is pleasant. It is pleasant. He's talking about the singing. The singing itself is, is pleasant. It's enjoyable. The NIV says, How pleasant and fitting it is to sing praise. Or I like the New Living Translation. How good to sing praises to God, how delightful and how fitting. So that phrase points us to some 
really important truth about worship. You see, worship is not just fitting in the way that we would say, um, you know, hey, the event is, is business casual, so it was fitting that you decided to wear khakis and a navy, navy blazer. Like, yawn, boring, right? Worship is not like, oh, you got it right, and we're just, you know, okay. No, he's saying it is joyous. It is delightful. It is, oh, a, a source of enjoyment and pleasure to worship God. It is more fitting like, like, the, like a young man and young woman who fall in love and just everybody who knows them says they are just so fitted for one another. Like those people just go together and the, the, the wedding is just this incredible celebration of this couple coming together just are so right. And everybody says, yes, they should be together. It's not just like, oh yeah, that works. It's like, no, we, we enjoy this. We're celebrating it with them. And that's what worship is like. Worship is fitting in a way that brings us deep pleasure. So I want you to see, not just in Psalm 147, but this is a truth throughout all of Scripture, that applauding God is our great delight. Applauding God is our great delight. This is what brings true soul-level soul satisfaction. Applauding God. Praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God. It is pleasant, lovely, delightful, enjoyable. A song of praise is fitting. We are made for worship, and we all worship something. And when we worship God, we find joy, we find delight in our worship. Have you, have you ever thought about why God would create a beautiful world? Like, why would He go through the, the, the effort of making it pretty? Couldn't, if He wanted to, God could have made the whole world just a different shade of khaki. You know what I mean? Like, there is, it would have been within his power and control if just the sun was just a brighter shade of khaki and every morning it came up and made everything a little bit different color of khaki and it went down and everything was dark again. But he didn't do that, did he? He made the sun this bright orange, yellow, beaming ball of gas that comes up on a beautiful blue sky and illuminates these white and gray clouds and rainbows come after the rain and the birds are not just all khaki, they're yellow and red and blue. You guys all have different color shirts on. It's just... Our world is a colorful, beautiful... Why in the world would God do that? Why would He make it pleasurable to our eyes to see the world that we see? It's because He Himself is beautiful. He is beautiful. He is pleasurable. He is a joy to us. He's not just boring. He is awesome in majesty. And He is beautiful. When we see something beautiful, when we see something that is worthy of our adoration... There's just this innate desire in us to praise it, to applaud it, to, to worship it. And that is a God-given desire. So, um, C.S. Lewis wrote a really cool little book on the Psalms called Reflection on the Psalms. And he says, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is the appointed consummation. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling each other how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete until it is expressed. Do you understand that? Like when we see something as wonderful, we just have this desire to say, that's amazing. Do you see that? Do you see what I see? We have this desire to just get it out. And then C.S. Lewis says, the worthier the object, the more intense the delight will be. Applauding God is our great delight. It brings soul-level satisfaction when we worship God, when we see Him for who He is and praise Him. The commentator Matthew Henry wrote, Praising God is work 
that is its own wages. When you work and worship, you get the reward. It comes back to you in a reward. The act of worship itself is attractive and it's good. And God gets the glory and we get the joy. Of course, it probably goes without saying, but, but worth saying, we don't, we don't worship God for the sake of our own joy, right? If we say, I'm doing this just so I, 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 I want to be happy, therefore I'm going to do this. We're, we're putting the cart before the horse. It doesn't, doesn't work that way. Jesus said, it's more blessed to give than receive. But the blessing, the happiness comes when we give glory to God. We do receive the joy. Applauding God is our great delight. So what can we applaud God for? There are literally an infinite number of reasons to applaud God. But Psalm 47, 147, focuses around two main aspects of God's character that, that seem like they'd be total opposites. And what makes God so wonderful is that these things are just intertwined in His character. That these things that look like they're different are actually a part of Him. It's what makes God God, and it's what makes God good. He is both Lord and He is good. Psalm 147 starts and ends. You'll see if you notice through the last few Psalms of of the book of Psalms, a lot of them do this. They start and end with praise the Lord, which in Hebrew is hallelujah. So they start and end with hallelujah. And there's only a few commands. You know, a command is telling you to do something. So the beginning and the end, it tells you to do something. Praise the Lord. And then verse 7 and verse 12 kind of sections it off different ways. Commanded the similar ways. Verse 7, sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Make melody to our God on the lyre. Verse 12, praise the Lord, O Jerusalem. Praise your God, O Zion. So why? Why is he calling us to praise God? What is it about God's character and his nature that, that makes the psalmist want to say, this is worth praising? It's these two things that are seemingly different, opposites, but yet intertwined together in his character. Here's why you should applaud God. Applaud God who rules the cosmos and cares for his people. Applaud God who rules the cosmos and cares for his people. This is who our God is. He is the one who is in control of all things and yet knows every detail about your life. Is that a little bit strange to you? Like God has some really big things to be in charge of. For example, verse 8, he's in charge of all the rain. It says, he covers the heavens with clouds. He prepares rain for the earth. He makes grass grow on the hills. Who's in charge of all the thunderclouds and all the rain and all the earth? God is. God is. You know what would happen if I had a job like that? I'd be totally overwhelmed. I'd be failing at it, and that'd be the only thing I could do. <laughs> if I was in charge of telling the rain where to go, I'd be miserable. But I can tell you what I wouldn't be doing. I wouldn't be calling you to check on how your kid's doing this week because I'm in charge of the rain. I got a, I got a big job to do. You know what God does? He's in charge of all the rain. And you know one of the things he does with the rain? It says in verse 14, he fills you with the finest of wheat. One of the things God does with the rain is he makes crops grow in such a way that you get to eat. God is thinking about your stomach and all 7.8 billion people in the world when he's thinking about the rain. He can do both. He can care about your kids and he can be in charge of how much rain is falling over Singapore today. God, that's who God is. He's in charge of all the cosmos and he's caring about you. He rules over all things. Our, in our scientific age, there can be this, this kind of misconception that just because we can figure out the science behind how rain works, which I'd probably have like a third grade level understanding of, but I understand like evaporation, condensation, rain. Like, okay, I get that. 
But just because we can figure out the science of this doesn't mean God is less in charge. God, it just means that God is a God of order who's structured the world in such a way that it works this way. And God is doing that and all kinds of other millions of things all at one time. He rules in such a way with order and structure all for his glory. Verse 15 says, he sends out his command on the earth. His word runs swiftly. I like that. His word is like a runner going out across the world, like a lightning bolt that shoots across the sky, accomplishing what he wants it to. Verse 16 and 17 connects it to snow. He gives snow like wool. He scatters frost like ashes. He hurls down crystals of ice like crumbs. Who can stand before his cold? Back, back in January, we had one of the best snows I remember in South Carolina. It was just beautiful. It was an incredible white blanket that just covers everything. God sent it. And you know what God did? He then melted it. By his word, he melts it. Verse 18, he sends out his word and melts them. He makes his wind blow and the waters flow. Snow and the water that comes from it is all sent by God's word. And then my favorite part of this psalm around this idea of God's rule over the cosmos is verse 4. Did you notice this as Mary read this? Verse 4 says, God determines the number of stars. I just pause on that for a minute. God determines the number of stars. Of stars. Back a couple summers ago, we preached. I was preaching the Psalms. Psalm eight talks about how God uh, puts the moon and the stars in, in place by His fingers. And so we talked about the number of stars. You ever thought about how, number, how many stars there are in the galaxies? I shared this two two years ago. But it, to the to the naked eye, if you're in a in a pretty open space, you can see a few thousand stars, somewhere between two and four thousand stars, just with your eye, if you had the patience to sit there and count, which is a lot of stars. And I would not have the patience to do that, right? But that's a that's a lot of stars. Just a few hundred years ago, uh, you know, people that kind of watch these things thought, okay, it's probably at least triple that, so six, eight, ten thousand stars in the world, which is a lot of stars. Well, we've come a long way, and back in 2003, there's a group in Australia who conducted this massive research project for just the known universe. You know how many stars they came up with? Seventy thousand million, 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 or the number they, I don't know, used to invent numbers like this, seventy-six trillion. Who knew that's a number? which is 7 times 10 to the 22nd, 7 with 22 zeros. That's the number they came up with. But of course, that was like 20 years ago. So we've, we've gotten further. We've gone further. Today, the estimate is up to about 1 septillion, which is 24 zeros. That's a lot. So to put that, I know that number means nothing to us because we can't, you know, pass like a couple hundred. I can't really imagine it. So let's put it this way. Anybody been to the beach this summer? You picture, if you haven't been there, picture what it's like. Picture, picture grabbing a, a handful of, of grains of sand, you know? And picture slowly letting it, letting it drip out of your hand and counting those grains. I mean, just how many, how many grains of sand is this? That's a lot, right? Like, again, I don't have the patience to sit there, and I got too many kids running around. I would never be able to count that number of grains of sand. There are more stars in the known universe than there are grains of sand, not just at Myrtle Beach, but in all the beaches and all the deserts in all the world. That's how many stars there are, and probably way more. And apparently the number's not anywhere close. It's like 20 times or something crazy more. Again, these are numbers that don't mean anything to me other than a lot, a whole lot. You know who figured out the number it would be? God did. God determined the number of stars. But you see where verse four goes after that? He didn't stop with just the number. <laughs> he names them, he names them. Verse 4, he determines the number of stars and he gives names. He gives to all of them their names. Are you kidding me? 
Who can come up with seven septillion? What was the number? One septillion star number of different names. I, I Googled this because I thought it'd be interesting. 7.8 billion people in the world. There's only about 441,000 different first names. Like we are not that creative. 441,000 different names out of almost 8 billion people. God apparently has one septillion names for all the stars in the ground. That, that is just incredible. God is ruling the cosmos. He is orchestrating the universe in such a way that we as his humanity, as his, the, 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 the pinnacle of his creation, can look at why would God create something millions of light years away that we would never see? Just so that we can, when we see the glimpse of it, we can say, wow, God is ruling over all the cosmos. But let me tell you, that's just the beginning with God. Because if, again, if I was God and I had a job like the galaxies over there somewhere, I would have no concern for the people on the earth. But God has both. He rules the galaxies and he cares for his people. Theologians talk about how God is both transcendent and imminent. Transcendent meaning he is high above us, mighty, majestic, beyond our comprehension. But God isn't just out there somewhere overcharged of everything that we can't see. He is also imminent. He is personal. He is with us day by day. The ESV Study Bible has a great line. It says, God's greatness never implies remoteness. God's greatness never implies remoteness. He is with us. The same God who named the septillionth star also knows you. He knows you. God is not so busy out there in some galaxy far, far away that he doesn't have time for you. He knows you. He's listening. Verse 2, the Lord builds up Jerusalem. He cares about one little city in the Middle East. It says he gathers the outcast of Israel. And from the, that reference, we think this could have been written during the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. If you know the history of Israel, people were scattered about because of their sins. A generation later, God moves heaven and earth to bring all these people back together so they could know him and worship him like they were supposed to, despite all of their sin. And God is bringing them back. That is the character of God. He looks at the outcast. He looks at the weak. He looks at the sinner. He says, I want you to come to me. I want you to come to me. He cares for his people. And what does he do when he brings them in? Verse 3, he heals the brokenhearted and he binds up their wounds. Praise God that he welcomes, them, uh, welcomes us just as we are. Right? We can never heal ourselves in such a way that we are presentable to God. But praise God that when we come with all of our wounds, he doesn't leave us that way. He changes us. He molds us. He heals us. He strengthens us. And he changes our lives. That's worth a hallelujah. That's worth a praise to the Lord. 13 and 14, he strengthens the bars of your gates. He blesses your children within you. He makes peace in your borders. He fills you with the finest of wheat. Do you count your blessings? Do you recognize the good things that come to you in your life are gifts from the Lord? Do you have strength? Do you have peace? Has God given you children? Has God provided for your needs in any way? We don't deserve any of those things. They are gifts from the Lord. I love the way His Word is what the psalmist points out. The word, his Word is what commands the snow and the melting and all the things that go on. But then He says this about His Word in verse 19 and 20. He declares His Word to Jacob, His statutes and rules to Israel. He did not deal with us with any other nation. They did not know His rules. 
God, God's command, His word, His spoken word is not just an impersonal force that stays up there in the clouds somewhere. His word comes to you. He uses the personal name for the people of Israel, Jacob. He came to you. He's coming to, to His people so they can know Him. Uh, one of the best psalm commentators I know is Derek Kidner. And he writes, By addressing us, not just programming us, God shows that He seeks a relationship not simply a sequence of actions carried out. If God wanted 8 billion beings on the world that just robotically did everything He commanded, He would have made robots, not people. But He didn't. He made people who could enter into a relationship with the Almighty God. That's why He speaks. That's why He speaks. God's God. If He, if he wanted to make something, just robotically did something, He would have. But He has spoken to you. He has given you His Word so that you can know Him. You can have a relationship with the Lord Almighty. Praise the Lord that He rules the cosmos and He cares for His people. Do we, do we need any more reason to praise God? That, that's enough, right? That's enough. But there's a couple more verses here, so, you know, we've got a couple more minutes, right? Maybe? I think there's one more you've got to see here. We started out with showing how worship is both fitting and our, our source of joy, right? It's, it's right. And when we worship Him, we're filled with joy. Surely the, the creator of all the cosmos, if, what, what gives Him joy? If we think about our worship, it gives us joy. When we praise God, what, what gives God joy? Surely he, He's creating, He's right now in the middle of creating some, some galaxy that we'll never see. And He's forming together all these big and little stars and planets and asteroids and whatever else goes into galaxies. And he's making all of that and just enjoying and delighting in it. Surely that's what he brings him, brings him joy, right? It, it might. It could. But do you know what Psalm 147 says brings joy, delight to God? Verse 10. His delight is not in the strength of the horse, nor his pleasure in the legs of man, but the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those who hope in his steadfast love. Do you hear that? Do you know what brings God joy? You do. God delights in us. We bring joy to the same one who formed stars and named them. Every single one. And he finds joy in you. In you. Charles Spurgeon wrote this about this verse. It is striking. It's a striking thought that God should not only be at peace with some kinds of men, but even find solace and a joy in their company. Oh, the matchless condescension of the Lord, that His greatness should take pleasure in insignificant creatures of His hand. Or C.S. Lewis, the most famous sermon, The Weight of Glory. The promise of glory is the promise almost incredible and only possible by the work of Christ, that some of us, of any who really chooses, shall actually survive that examination and shall find approval, shall please God, to please God, to be a real ingredient in the divine happiness to be loved by God not merely pitied but delighted in as an artist delights in his work or a father in a son it seems impossible a weight of burden of glory which is which our thoughts can hardly sustain but so it is you are an ingredient in the happiness of God God's joy is a recipe that includes you if you know Him, you can give joy to God. That's amazing. Do you realize that? 
Of course, God doesn't need us. Over and over again, the Bible points that out. Acts 17, 24, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by men, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. So don't get a big head and say, ah, I control the joy of God. No, 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 God's just fine without you. But God has invited you into a relationship. And he doesn't do that out of obligation, like, ah, man, I created these guys. I guess I got to take care of them now. No, he enjoys you. He delights in you. He wants to be in relationship with you. You notice what God doesn't delight in? It says he doesn't delight in the strength of the horse or the legs of man. Both these are reference to battle, to war, to winning something by our own brute force. You could contrast that with verse 11 and extend that out and say, God, God doesn't, he doesn't delight in just your physical brute force or your beauty or your intellect or your wisdom or clever words or vast accomplishments. God doesn't look at the trophies on your shelf and say, I like you more because your trophies are better. No, no, no. It's not your accomplishments that get, the, get God's joy going. He enjoys you for you. He enjoys a relationship with you. Our deeds are not the source of God's joy. Our relationship with Him. Those who fear Him, those who know, who hope in His steadfast love, who trust His promises, those are the ones who find joy. Many of us go through life, I don't know about you, but I go through life, and the constant thing I fight is, am I really approving, does God really approve of me today? We live with this, I don't know about you, I live with this low-level guilt like I haven't done enough. I need to do more. If I don't do this, then maybe God's not really happy. But over and over again, God's word tells us your deeds are not the source of your place before God. God's deeds are. Christ's accomplishments are. Your deeds do not bring, or are not the source of joy to God. It's our relationship with Him. God delights in us not because we're perfect, because his son was perfect and died for you in your place so that you could be with him. Will you worship him? Will you worship the one true God? Will you worship him and enjoy him and delight in him knowing he delights in you? One really simple and clear way to do that would be to commit to this hour most weeks. People are busy, things go on, but the school's starting. I always feel like this is really the real new year. Make this a new year August resolution to say, I'm going, to be, I'm going to be regularly in worship, corporate worship together. But even more foundational than this hour in your, in your calendar is to, to reconsider what is the very core foundation of your life. What do you live for? We as a church want to be really clear about our mission. Our mission as a church is to applaud God. But that's not just a, a corporate level mission. That is your mission and my mission. We are called to applaud God. And if you are living for anything else, it will eat you. It will not satisfy you. It will not bring you joy. And you will ruin and waste your life. Do not waste it. Live for the glory of God. And if you need one more motivation for that, one last one. Earlier I read verse 3. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. Do you know what our deepest wounds are, I think? At least some of them. Our deepest wounds is that we don't really know that we're loved. We are constantly trying to earn love and affection from somebody somewhere, whether it be God, a spouse, kids, our job. We want somebody to say, you're enough. You are loved. We deeply, in our core of our being, need somebody to say, you are loved. God sent his son, Jesus, 
And he read one day in a temple, very beginning of his ministry, Luke chapter 4. Isaiah 61.1 says, that's the verse that Caitlin read earlier, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, and He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. Sounds a lot like Psalm 147.3, doesn't it? He came to heal your wounds. Jesus read that psalm, read, read Isaiah 61.1 that day, and Luke 4 tells us that He set the scroll down, gave it to the attendant, the eyes were in the synagogue were fixed on Him, and He began to say to them, Today the Scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. He came to bring healing to our wounds. How did He do that? Because He was wounded for us. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. He went to the cross to pay for all the things you and I have done wrong, all the reasons that God could look at us and say, you are not good, you are not worthy, you are not loved. God put all that condemnation on His Son so that our, all the wounds that we bear could be on Him. So that He could look at you for all who believe and say, you are healed. You are my child. You are loved. God heals the deepest wounds in our hearts when we come before Him, when we applaud Him, when we fear Him. And that's our greatest joy. Live for His applause. Enjoy His presence. And He will bring healing. Let's pray. Father, Your Word is enough. Your Word is enough. It brings healing to our souls. It brings salvation to our hearts. Father, we confess so many ways that we run from You and we do not delight in You. God, may You transform us. May You shape us so that we can see You for who You are and enjoy Your presence. God, even as we go into a, a, a fall and a new season, may we once again evaluate the way we, we think about our time and our, think about our, our energy and think about what matters most in the world. And God, may we live for no other applause than to applaud you, to enjoy your glory, to enjoy your presence. God, we, we yearn for you, and we pray that you would meet us in that yearning. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.